Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The average researcher spends about 75% of their time raising money for research, and I feel like that's a waste of their time. And I'd rather them be in the, in the lab doing more work or hiring more postdocs to bring in to do more experiments. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, Dave Bjork, self-proclaimed, air quotes, research evangelist, young adult lung cancer survivor, and champion of the cause of direct-to-research philanthropy. What does that mean? Well, here's what I think it means. It's almost too easy to donate and support cancer research, but it's often this giant cauldron into which you throw your money and never know where it winds up. Cue the black and white infomercial, there's gotta be a better way. How can I know where my research funding goes? Can I just avoid a middleman and donate to one specific doctor for a more immediate and tangible impact? I also learned that the actual process of research funding is insanely stupid and ridiculously antiquated. You shouldn't have to wait 20 years to get an NCI-funded grant. Anyone who's written a grant with a glass of Merlot knows exactly what I'm talking about. Also, does the life science sector have a bad rap? All this and more, my friends, on today's exciting episode. Enjoy the show. All right, Dave Bjork, self-proclaimed research evangelist. I have one question for you. How much shit did you get as a kid for your last name being Bjork? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, Matt, I grew up in Minnesota, so uh, Bjork was not that uncommon of a name. But once I went out east to go to college in Pennsylvania, it was over. Did you do the whole weird European-Swedish emo thing on purpose, or was that just by default? <laughs> well, no, what, the, what my friends at Penn used to do to me is they say, Dave, say Minnesota. I say, oh, you mean like Minnesota? Like that. <laughs> and I, I, was like a, I was like the hit of the party. And when Fargo came out, tell me all about that mystery. I'm totally kidding. You don't have to tell me about Fargo. But, well, I love the movie because that's like that, that the woman, uh, Marge, that's my Aunt Barb, like for 100%. For real? <laughs> no, no, she sounds just like her. Well, I mean, I went to upstate New York, I went to Binghamton, and it was the first time I heard a flat A ever growing up in New York City, like Matthew. So I'm like, oh, that <laughs> must be what it's like everywhere else in the country. So yeah. I respect all of your weirdness. Um, <laughs> in being from Minnesota, eh? See, I can do yeah, it. Yeah, don't you know? Down there, hey. I can't pull it off. You just, you won the internet. Just read that with there. Anyway, let's get actually to why we're on the show. I was introduced to you through our dear friend, Alicia Staley. So props to Alicia Staley. And you are a self-proclaimed research evangelist. I will opine that I'm a cookie dough evangelist. So help me understand what separates the two of us. <laughs> well, as a lung cancer survivor, 
I started to learn a lot about research. I was I was working a few years ago uh, raising money for research, and and a friend of mine, he called me the research evangelist. He said you should start uh, on Twitter and start writing in a blog because the Greek meaning of the word evangelist is bringing the good news, and I seem to always bring the good news. Except when you had to tell people you had lung cancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is true. That was not fun. How old are you? I was 35. Yeah, the perfect age to get lung cancer, right? Yeah, especially when you don't smoke, right? And you're, you have three young kids and you're playing basketball every day. So you think you're in good shape. Well, that's always my question to anyone with lung cancer is like, hey, how many people did you smoke? Like, are we, are we done with that yet? Why do we still keep saying that? You know, we're still not done with that. But you know what I used to say to people? I'd say, you know, I would sometimes get defensive about it. I'd say, well, you know what? If your uncle has colorectal cancer, did, did, did you tell him, did you say, did you eat too much meat, red meat growing up? You know, it's like the stigma still exists. It's it's still pretty, it's still pretty terrible. And a lot of us in the lung cancer community feel really badly about it, and we hate it, and we wish it would go away. Right. It's been a large narrative. I mean, I, I worked in young adult cancer for 15 years. We had uh, lots of communities uh, around lung cancer, and the young people felt ostracized. But at the same time, like you're 27, 36, 42, 19 with lung cancer, you didn't smoke. What's wrong with you? But I have, I have like I equate this to like my friends in the type one diabetes community where people say, "Oh, just eat better." Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, so you know all about this because how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was twenty one in college with brain cancer, and no one said, you know, think smarter. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. So all right, let's go back to this thirty five family young guy lung cancer out of the blue symptoms. What happened? Out of the blue, I was up on a. I went fishing with a buddy of mine, one of my roommates up in Maine at his, at his uh, cabin and, and just had severe chills and came back and ended up with pneumonia. And so I went in, got the chest x-ray, you know, like, like they do, and sent me home with my antibiotics and, you know, went away. And then six months later, I got pneumonia again. And, you know, my primary care doc, I mean, God bless him, I, I really like him, but, you know, he said the same, basically said the same thing. But a radiologist saw the ex chest x-ray and said, I contacted my doctor and said, you know, you have the, the mass, the, the infection is in the same spot. And so you should have a CAT scan. And so there, sure enough, that's how they found it on the CAT scan. So you're lucky that that guy paid attention. Yeah. And it also, because it's, it's people like me, you're not being screened at age 35, you know, for, for lung cancer, because you're not at risk for lung cancer. So that's one of the big challenges of lung cancer, really. All right. So I like to talk about how advocates are there to help make shit suck less for the next them. What about that experience was excoriatingly in, in just insane for you that you want to course correct for other people? I think for me, this was this was a while back. So I think the the, the course correct for me would be to try to find people, you know, with the access of social media now to find other people uh, that uh, may have gone through experience that was similar to yours, because Otherwise, it's a very lonely road, you know, to try to get information and you're working with your doctor, your emotions are going crazy, as you know, and you're just trying to keep your, your shit together. So uh, I think that sort of finding other people that you can talk to, you know, that are in a like, a like place is really important. Yeah, the late, great Ellen Stovall, one of my mentors from the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, was very famous for saying that quality of life is tantamount to quality of care. And what you're describing is the need to not feel alone, isolation, mental health. And you wish you had it. I wished I had it. It kind of exists now. Where does that factor into research evangelism? Well, for me, research evangelism, as I've, I've been trying to find a place as an, as an advocate in the lung cancer space, there's a lot of advocates out there who are 
fighting for their lives right now. They're stage four and they're, you know, they're advocating for their specific situation. I'm not fighting for my life right now. I'm thankfully living a life of gratitude because I'm not still fighting lung cancer. So I'm carving out my space as my advocacy is shouting from the mountaintops on the need to continue to support research because there's so many good things happening in lung cancer research that I want to be the one that's shining a bright light on the people that are doing the research in lung cancer. So what is your actual hill to die on in one sentence? <laughs> I would like to help academic researchers and biotech scientists get the proper funding so they can find new ideas. Because right now they spend, that's more than one sentence, is it? I'm sorry about that. I forgive you, go on. <laughs> because the average researcher spends about 75% of their time raising money for research, like writing grants and, and going to fundraisers and whatnot. And I feel like that's a waste of their time. And I'd rather them be in the, in the lab doing more work or hiring more postdocs to bring into more experiments. So that's, that's what I really care a lot about. It's like the government official who spends all their time raising money and they can't legislate. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, that is kind of, that's a perfect example. If you're spending, you know, I, my, my friends that are in the research world, they're up 11 o'clock at night, midnight, they're still writing grants. It's like you never talk to them because they're not seeing their families because they're, they're writing grants all the time. And so I'd rather them be doing the work that makes a difference. So let's talk about that particular issue. It's like cholesterol in the artery to actually get funding to do something. It takes you longer to do this. It's like a, I'm going to throw in a cigarette. It's like the cigarette is like 90% filter and 1% tar, right? It takes you all that time just to get to the tar. Why is, yeah. it, why is that the way it is? Is it built by design to be stupid or is it just become the way it is because that's the way it has to be? I, I think it's by it's been designed that way. I think the whole process of of getting you know government funding. If you want to get an NIH grant, well, good luck because the average age is about forty three years old now that a researcher gets their first big NIH grant. So, and in ecology, you probably know that the the chance of get of getting funded is like ten or thirteen percent. So, the system is set up that way. And then I think in philanthropy, what really bugs me is that you know people might give you know twenty million dollars to Dana Farber or to the American Cancer Society or whatever, but how much of that money is going to research? The people in the research labs um, at Charlestown at Mass General Hospital, they're not seeing that money. So why, is it, why do we think that way? Why, why don't philanthropists think that they, they can fund an individual lab? Much more efficient, right? Well, we talked about this on our call just for the listeners. Dave and I had a call a couple of weeks ago and, and kind of got on the same page about most of it. We agree on pretty much everything. And you're right. We talked about the horse blinder effect of people that want to make a difference and give back. And the shiny objects are always the big box groups and the big name groups and the corporate brand groups. What would make someone think to pause in the window between I've got money, I want to help, what do I do? and make them understand or appreciate the objectivity of where they can perhaps create a portfolio of philanthropy instead. Right. I mean, you could, there were a lot of good researchers out there, you know, that need funding. You know, there's, there's a lot of famous ones that, that are doing just fine. But, you know, you're, you have, you know, 38-year-old or 40-year-old researchers slugging away trying to do your thing. You know, people could fund individual labs. You can fund multiple labs if you wanted to. You know, you could find a portfolio of, a lab in California and a lab in Massachusetts and one in Texas. And you know what I mean? You could, you, you literally could actually build a portfolio that way. So you mentioned that no one really gets their money from the NCI until they're 43 years. What are they doing for 20 years leading up to that moment? Writing grants? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're writing grants. They're probably getting a lot of smaller grants. They're writing to like the American Lung Association, to, you know, to other uh, foundations. 
you know, 50,000 here, 100,000 there. It's like, it's like one of my friends, John Wettstein, uh, who's at Mass General, now he's at Fox Chase, he described it as really running your own business. It's like making hiring decisions, making purchase decisions on equipment, and, you know, it's like based upon funding. So if you get a grant and it's a, it's a one-year grant, then you're like, oh, I got to chase down $100,000 again next year. So it's just a constant battle. It's like there should be a stock market exchange where people can invest in researchers and kind of cherry, like, like, not like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, but is there anything like that? Incubators, accelerators that have risk models on what's best to invest in, which researchers can do X, Y, and Z? I've actually heard of one recently. It's called Benefunder. A friend of mine out in, in California um, is doing some work with them, and they're trying to match. They have a, a sort of a stable of researchers, and they're trying to match them with uh, wealthy, high net wealth uh, individuals and family offices. And so I've actually been talking with them about how I might be able to collaborate with them. I think that's kind of a cool idea. It really does sound like, I mean, like, I, I don't feel like we're inventing the idea here on the air, but at the same no. time, you're right. We need to create better equity parity, but also KPIs, jargon for key performance indicators, listeners, on what we're holding researchers to do. But at the same time, science is designed to fail and learn. So how do you conflate success with failure and ideation? Anyway, I'm jargoning, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, that is, I mean, that is a really, that is a tough question because, Science is designed to fail, and so often that's a big, that's another talk about paperwork. That's another big part of the process of re, of reapplying for a grant. Is like so, what did what success did you have, you know? Or, and that can be part of the equation to get the next uh, round of funding. So it seems to me that you know this, there are times when there's research discoveries, or even even if you just if you did a a, a project and it failed, that's still advancing science because you you at least have an answer, right? right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I mean, I don't have the answers either as far as like, how do you grade that and how, how that all works? But, you know, it feels like there are there are definitely progress that, that gets made in, in a lot of these labs that it's just a lot of work for them to keep a project going. I mean, my listeners know that my Hilda Dine is making sure people know shit exists. And what I mean by that is, and, and I've been saying this ad nauseum, is when you get sick and something bad happens in the cancer world, you enter a market that's kind of like supply only. No one demands to be there. And you're at the mercy of a system to make you aware of your choices. So all the research in the world, all the breakthroughs, all the new things that are happening that get brought up the chain of FDA approved, whatever it is, if you don't know about it, it's no good to you. Where are you in that equation? Uh, it's an excellent point, Matt, because... One of, the, one of the things that really drives me is this equality of care, right? And so w whether you're uh, racially diverse or whether you're geographically diverse, you know, if you're, if you're like, I'm from Minnesota, okay, so my Aunt Barb <laughs> lives in northern Minnesota. So is she getting the same level of care that I got at Mass General Hospital, right? With all the precision medicine and stuff that's happening, it's like, I, 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 I don't know that that's the case. I think... A lot of the biomarkers right now in lung cancer have been identified, but I don't know that all of the people are getting genomic tests across across the board. So, Dave, what you just described in jargon town are called social determinants of health, right? That just means like the shit that is meets the shit that might be creates the shit that will be. And <laughs> what a, what a, can you make it any simpler? And yes, whether you're in rural America or at a name brand giant cancer institution, there are different systems in place to provide you 
with objective decisions and doctors who may be more aware of the 70,000 new FDA approvals that happened that week. Right. Yeah, I think that's it. And it's it's not just to criticize the the oncologists in a rural setting or a community setting. It's there's so much information. And isn't that really the problem? And there's, how do how do we keep you know, you know how fast things are changing? It's like it's like, you know, people are talking about, you know, machine learning and AI and how, you know, that's going to supposedly help decision making, you know, but they've been talking about that for several years. I'm not sure, you know, where that's at. Yeah, it's it's an equation that has no number at the end of the equal sign. And everyone's trying to figure out a way to make sure that there is a number there. But in terms of what have you discovered? Or so someone branded you the research evangelist. Where has that taken you? Now that you, you mentioned before that thankfully you're not in the muck, in the sty, in the mire of dealing with cancer, and you're here to make things suck less for other people. Where has that journey taken you in the past couple of years? Well, the journey has taken me to you know, working as a vice president of my friend calls it the vice president of spreadsheets, <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> the vice president of development at the National Foundation for Cancer Research, where, you know, it really was, you know, I call, I call it making the donuts, but it's like hit people for money all the time and this and that. And, and uh, good mission, you know, re- supporting, you know, seed funding for, you know, early academic research. But if, the, if, you've, if you're raising, you know, several million dollars and only a fraction of that's going to research, I find that to be very inefficient. And so where that's leading me to is, you know, to take my research evangelist, my evangelism, and, and uh, start becoming more vocal, even more vocal. I've been writing in a blog for many years, but, but I'd like to be, you know, part of, you know, the conversation on a podcast and, and, and talking about, you know, the need for funding because there's great people out there doing great work, but funding is a problem. And so... I feel like the evangelism is going to be, you know, if you really care about research, then I would not, no offense, but I wouldn't give money to the American Cancer Society because that's not going to go to John Wettstein's lab at Fox Chase or a very small fraction of the millions and millions of dollars. So that's where the evangelist is going, bringing the good news, right? So how do I shine a light on brilliant people who are not famous, but maybe they should be famous? Back with our guest after the break. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You wrote a piece on, I think it was LinkedIn, shining a light on the good people in the life science community. So let's pivot from the problem to are there solutions? Because I, I, I want you to answer the question. The life science, that's like a big quote, like the you like you people, the life science sector. <laughs> you know, does it have a bad rap? Is it woke to what you are trying to espouse the virtues of? And are there really just bad actors that won't listen? I would say a good point about life science. It is kind of a big catch-all phrase, right? So I, I believe that there are, you know, really good people working. And to me, life science is, is academic research labs. It's biotech companies. It's the investors that help that process. It's the organizations that amplify the work. But they do have a bad rap. Biotech and pharma has a bad rap. Now, yes, some of it might be, I'm not here to debate that whole thing. That's a whole different argument. But I see it from the perspective of a patient and a lot of the people I know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who work in this space. And yes, there might be a few bad actors, and those make the headlines. But most of the people have a story to tell. You know, they lost their son to epilepsy or they, you know, they grew up in, you know, a hard scrabble environment and, and just always wanted to be a scientist. So there's a lot of people within this space that I think are doing good work for the right reasons with their heart in it and go to work every day thinking about those catchphrases like, you know, finding treatments for patients with unmet medical needs, right? That's a, that's a buzzword. I'm not saying everybody believes that, but I run into so many of them. It is a common, it's a common theme. And so, again, I think people should know about that. And then we can debate pricing of of cancer drugs and and all of that, we can all debate that, but let's don't let's don't cast aspersions on all the the people, the thousands of people who are working there, who you can't pay them with a broad brush to say, well, they're all just out for the money. And I hear that all the time. It's like, oh, they're just greedy. They don't want to find a cure for cancer because they can't make money again. I'm like, I don't know if that's true. I don't. I really don't believe that. But I know a lot of people do believe that. I mean, you've heard that, right? Well, like it's like the cure in a safe conspiracy theory. Yeah. And, you know, if there was a cure in a safe, no pharma CEO's kid would have leukemia. And there are tons of pharma executives kids who had leukemia. So exactly. it's like, you know, the, I think the greatest conspiracy is just that there isn't one and shut the fuck up. And there I said it. <laughs> all right. So I, help. All right. So this may be something that doesn't need to be explained, but I just want to do it for explainer's sake. Why? And I'll get into part two. Why is it beneficial to give to an individual researcher than a big box group? Because it isn't as much as where does the money go, but how is the money spent? Yeah, I think the process in my experience, I know I've worked in the nonprofit world, you know, for many years. And so the, the process, no matter what organization, they all have a process. I'm using quotation fingers that you can't see. 
but the process means that they, you know, the money comes in the door and it kind of filters through, it pays the salaries and the lights and this and that. And then, and then there's some process where the, the advisory board or, or someone says, now we're gonna rank these different projects and we're gonna pick what we think is the best one. And our donors are gonna trust us that we're gonna pick the right ones. And that seems to be pretty common. So the way that I see it is if you care about leukemia or if you care about a specific type of leukemia or lung cancer or something that's epigenetics or whatever, there's something specific that affects your loved one that you could find someone who's actually doing that work. Like think of it if in like a rare disease, like how cool it is when I see patients or families actually meet a researcher that's actually working on that specific thing that affects their family. Yeah, that's crazy karma. It is crazy karma. So, so it's, it is maybe not so much, you know, where the money goes, but it's like, how is it spent? So if you gave a hundred dollars, you want a hundred dollars to go filter through that system. So, you know, 25 cents goes to research and 25 cents goes to this and 18% goes to that, because that's really what I see a lot. There's really, you know, the, there's really few of the organizations that call themselves research foundations, you know, where uh, the hundred percent of the money or even a high percent of it is going to actual research. So Dave, I think it's important for our listeners to know that there's another side of you besides being the research evangelist is that you're the co-founder of a group called Cannons Fighting Cancer and a group called Fraxa Biotech Games, which I read about. It's super amazingly cool. Can you talk to us about where those came from? And I assume they're just byproducts of your being an evangelist anyway. <laughs> totally. Yeah, the idea for the Canyons Fighting Cancer was, and actually the common theme between the two is, I love to bring people together. I, it's, it's, it's one of my, my Simon Sinek whys is like, I believe good things happen when you bring good people together and people who care. So the Canons was, how do I get the lacrosse community of kids from, you know, eight years old to through college and the professional lacrosse team in Boston called the Boston Cannons to do something really cool under the spirit of unity. So we brought all these people together. We did a charity game at Harvard Stadium with a bunch of former players and uh, we raised money. And the story was we're going to raise money to go to uh, Dan Haber's lab um, at Mass General Hospital. And we raised $125,000 and it was really awesome. It was really fun. So the biotech game was, a, was another, a play on that. How do I bring together another community? Let's bring together the biotech community of companies, many of them that you've never heard of. It's not Pfizer and, and AstraZeneca. It's a bunch of companies that no one's heard of, but there's so many of them. And there's, they love to compete. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of younger people. Why don't we get together to network, have a good time, serendipity of like meeting fun people, and let's play some cornhole and, 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 and can jam and bucket ball and, and um, have a couple of beers and some burgers and, and see what happens. And we'll raise money for a good cause. And so the first year, well, actually over the three years, we've raised about $150,000 on that, on that program. So again, it's bringing good people together. And I believe that good things happen when you do that. Just really incredible paid for kind of stuff. Let me end with, with you know, the, the, the happy ending story here is that you're still here. Look at that. My dad would say above the tulips and <laughs> your family's still well. I mean, I can imagine only what it's like for dad to get sick with kids and everything. So give us give us a story. What's life like for you in the insanity of COVID? But at the same time, how are we still here? <laughs> yeah, you're still here, too. Don't forget. I think you are, right? Uh, one could argue, <laughs> but I'm going to agree. <laughs> yeah, well, I think for me, 
for me, when I say being here, it's still because lung cancer many times is not a very good diagnosis. I'm still here 20 years later from when I was diagnosed. And so I live a life of gratitude. I have a, my wife is a nurse. My son, my younger son is also a nurse. They both took care of COVID patients uh, on the front lines um, in, in March and April. And so we have a deep appreciation for uh, people who are doing good work. So that's kind of my that's kind of my view of life. But, you know, I think like you, I like I, I'm ready to just shake things up a little bit, a little bit more and kind of break some of the things that I think need to be changed. So how about you? How is what's what's your what's what's it like for you during COVID? Uh, I guess I'll conclude by saying that if a dumpster fire was inside another dumpster fire, <laughs> that was being thrown off a cliff into a river of lava while spiraling on a planet with no gravity into the center of a black hole. I think that was that visual enough for you guys listening to the show. I hope so. Very awesome. short answer to a short question. Oh, my goodness. Dave Bjork, research evangelist, patient advocate, lung cancer survivor. You are a rock star. We got to get this narrative out to more people funding the right research for the right purpose. Thank you so much for coming in out of patience. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.